Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. All right, well, we are um, actually just finished up a series in the book of 1 John as a church, and uh, I get the opportunity this week of of kind of starting a quick, short, three-week series called Basics. And kind of the idea is, is we recognize as a church, especially in a college setting, there are certain times throughout the year on the calendar where it makes a lot of sense to circle back and to look at some of the real basic things in our faith, in the Christian faith, and ultimately who God made us to be and what he has called us to do. And so my task this morning really is to look at the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And so I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to go ahead and open those up, pull out your device. I think the words will be on the screen. Um, And just kind of read along with me as I read. So we're in Matthew uh, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go ahead and pray for us real quick. Father God, Lord, we thank you um, for your word. Lord, we thank you for your mission that you have called us to. And we thank you that the men who sat on this mountain with Jesus, who received this mission, were faithful to it. And if there's one prayer that we ask this morning, Lord, if there's one thing that we plead, Lord, it's that your people today in Parkview this morning would hear these words and they would be inspired, they'd be motivated to be faithful to them. And we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, well, um, you know, a little over, well, a, little bit, a little bit ago, a couple weeks ago, it was a friend of mine who gave me, that caught wind that my family was going to be taking a little bit of a vacation right before school started up, four-day kind of excursion into western Iowa, if you will, and um, they, they blessed us with some tickets to the state fair. Now, I have never been to the state fair. Now, just me even saying those words, I'm sure there's some of you in this room where I just dropped like three or four. I'm from Iowa. I've lived here my entire life, and I've never been to the Iowa State Fair. I probably dropped in the level of respect that you had for me initially. There's probably some of you as well in the room who maybe I gained a few uh, levels of respect by saying that. I don't know. But it was an awesome awesome experience. We have five kids, took four of them, and we, we went to the fair. It was awesome. Just, you know, our, we didn't really have a plan as we entered. We got the map, we parked, and if you've been there, you know it's just a, it, if you do not know, the Iowa State Fair is kind of a big deal. All right, it's kind of a big deal, right? So we get there, and we start to walk throughout the fair, and we're like, you know, instantly just assaulted by all kinds of food and vendors and just people just everywhere. It was just, it was almost too much to take in. Right? And it was about maybe an hour or two in to our trip that we actually bumped into some friends and they saw us fumbling with the mass and friends from Parkview. And they're, they're like big fair people, like huge fair people. Like every year, all week, they just stay there. And they're like, oh, you're here. It's so awesome. And when we told them we didn't know what we were doing, what we were looking at, it was like the best thing we could have said. They grabbed our map. They started going circling things. Oh, you got to take the kids here. you got to see this. you got to do that. Just gave us about six things that we just 
had to do. And so, so we did. The kids had an awesome time seeing the animals. They had a blast. We made our way into this really big building. I think it's called maybe the Ag Building. I'm not totally sure. But they had these hard-boiled eggs they were giving away on popsicle sticks. And our kids are big hard-boiled egg fans. And I'm a big fan of anything that's free. And so we just kind of hung around that egg stand. You know what I'm saying? Made a few rotations. And this is lunch, kids. Eat up, you know? And while we were standing there, while we were standing there, there was this massive line that just like, this is a huge building. I mean, it would have been like from here all the way to like the children's wing. It was just, it just went out of the building. And, and we're sitting there eating these eggs and I'm looking over. And I'm like, what is everybody standing in? Like I couldn't see anything that they were going to. And so I kind of went up to a guy who looked, you know, pretty pleased to be in line. And I asked him, what, what's your, what you stand in line for? And he said, the butter cow. And I was like, oh, the butter cow. And I walked away. The butter cow. What the heck is the butter cow? You know, acting like I knew what I was talking about. And, you know, if you do not know, the state of Iowa has a butter cow, okay? And it is a sculpture that is it's exactly what you think it is. It's just a cow made out of butter. It's massive, and it was a huge deal. I didn't know. And so I pulled up and did a little reading, understood the history behind it. Really, really big thing. And I, you know, pulled up a couple pictures of what it looked like and you know, went to the kids. And I was like, hey, they're like, what, Dad, can we get in line? What is it all for? And I was like, well, they're standing in line for the butter cow. I said, well, what's the butter cow? So I turned the phone to them. I said, that's the butter cow. They kind of looked at it, maybe a little confused, rightfully so. All right, looked at it. And I said, do you, you want to get in line? And they said, no, I don't want to see that butter cow. <laughs> so I was like, okay, no offense to you, enthusiasts, but okay. The, you know, as we were there, it became very real that like we could spend a week there and still not see everything. It's that big of a deal. All right. Tons of stuff. Right. And, and even the people that are there who go there every year and spend all week there. The truth is, every time they go back, there's going to be new people to look at. You know, there's going to be new things to do and things to experience. And even those who are really familiar with the fair, when they go there, they will see something new. I think as we look at our text this morning, that's my prayer for us. My prayer is if you have been around the church for a while, if you are familiar at all with the scriptures, this is a pretty famous passage. It is kind of a big deal. It comes at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's these last words that Jesus gives to his disciples. It is a big deal. It's affectionately known throughout the the church history as the Great Commission. And for some of us, the temptation can be when we come here this morning to just trust on what we've already heard or already learned about the Great Commission. And I would just challenge you not to do that. The truth is, if I just full disclosure, at Parkview we have to give an outline by Wednesday so you get a nice little thing to follow in your bulletin. And I gave mine on Wednesday. I was like on time. It was pretty, I felt pretty good about it. And then I started to read more and more and more. And I was like, you know what? I think that's actually just half of the message. So the introduction is going to be a little bit longer. There's going to be some other parts, and I'll tell you when you can direct your attention to that outline. But, but really, there is so much here. There's so much here. And I want to suggest to you that as a church, it is very good. It is healthy. It is necessary to, that we return on a regular basis to the Great Commission. And as we do, as we look at these words, that we ask ourselves this, this question. Are we doing what Jesus is telling us to do? Have we remembered and are we following the marching orders as a church? These words come at, a, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew and they are given as the directive. The directive he wants seared in his reader's memory. As a church, we want to constantly be evaluating what we are doing under those terms. Are we making 
disciples? Does our ministry reflect obedience to these commands? It's a question as a church we have to continually ask, but not just as a church. It's also a question that individually, personally, I need to constantly be asking myself, am I making disciples? Are you making disciples? Disciples. And, and what is a disciple, maybe you ask. Maybe you're here and you do not know what a disciple is. Very way to, easy way to sum it up. A, a disciple is someone who learns from Jesus to be like Jesus. That's essentially what a disciple is. Somebody who, who sits at Jesus' feet, who learns from him with a desire to be like him. That's what it means to be a disciple. And I want to propose to you this morning that Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is primarily a passage about discipleship. Throughout Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, discipleship is a constant theme. And that theme comes to its culmination here in his final words. The Great Commission, as these words are commonly referred to, teach us about the priority, the necessity of discipleship. But they also teach us about the program, the practice of discipleship, the importance, the need for it in your life, and the how do you do it. These words, these five, five verses tell us those two things. Now, in verses 16 through 17, they give us the setting of the Great Commission, where this commission happened. Following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the 11 disciples do exactly as Jesus commanded them and instructed them. They are making their way up the Galilean hillside when they meet Jesus himself. We are told that when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. These two verses are so critical this is where I got derailed from my outline a little bit. I'd like to spend just a little bit of extra time in, in 16 and 17. And as we look at these, I think you can summarize these two verses up, the meaning of it. There's three big points I want to pull out. Three words, witness, worship, and weakness. These two words tell us a great deal about our witness, about our worship, and about our weakness. First, the witness. The location of this interaction in and of itself tells us a great deal. In Matthew 26, 32, before the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus instructed his disciples to meet him in Galilee. This makes sense. It would be customary for these men, all Galileans, to return to their home following their journey to Jerusalem for Passover. However, it is important to note that Galilee was referred to in Scripture in Matthew chapter 4, which was making a reference all the way back to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that Galilee was a land of the Gentiles. Or in Isaiah it said specifically, nations. Galilee of the nations. The very act of calling them back to Galilee, even in that action, I will meet you in Galilee, meet me. Even that action shows us that Jesus is emphasizing a global mission. That's ultimately what he's calling to, is a worldwide assignment. Just by calling him to Galilee. He's calling him to be a witness to those who are culturally and ethnically different. They're not simply to minister to Jews. They are not simply responsible for communicating this message to people who look, talk, dress, eat like they do. But to people who are different from them. Now, it's also significant to point out that this happened on a mountain. Throughout the book of Matthew, we read that this is one of many mountaintop moments in the life of Christ. This echoes the giving of the Torah all the way in Mount Sinai back in the book of Exodus. 
that could be Matthew showing that Jesus ultimately is the new Moses. Like Moses addresses the people of God at Mount Sinai, so Jesus speaks to his disciples here on a mountain in Galilee and gives them a worldwide mission as part of the new covenant. And so Jesus is set forth at the end of this narrative as not just a new Moses, but ultimately as a better Moses. It teaches us a great, great deal about witness, who we are to witness to and why we need to witness. Another thing it tells us a great deal about is worship. In verse 17, we learn that of how the disciples respond to this encounter with Jesus. We are told that when they saw him, they worshipped him. So upon drawing near to Jesus, their immediate response was to fall flat on their face and begin to worship Jesus. Matthew is telling us something that's absolutely critical. These men, these orthodox Jewish men who are well-versed in the ancient scriptures who know God's word, understand that even the first commandment says, you shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. If there's one thing these men know, it's that you don't worship anybody but God. But here, these common men fall on their knees and worship Jesus. Now, it's important to understand that because in our culture, especially in this academic community, the claims of the Christian faith are often met with a great deal of skepticism. It may not be socially or academically acceptable, or sorry, it may be socially or academically acceptable to call Jesus a great man. You can say he was a great person, he did great things, he said great things, he was a great teacher. But it is not, in our culture, maybe, for some of us, accepted to say he was God. He is God. Yet in the first days of the church, belief in the deity of Christ was so closely, was held so closely that it would be three centuries ultimately before a heretic within the church would rise up and challenge the deity of Christ. In fact, where it came to the nature of Christ, if there was one aspect that he was challenged, first and foremost, it was his humanity in the earlier days of the church. That was the one that people had a problem with. It's interesting how the times, the tables have flipped. It tells us a great deal about worship. Jesus is God. Next thing we see is that it tells us a little bit about weakness. If we were to read on those final three words in verse 17, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? These men, followers of Jesus, 11 of them draw near to Jesus. They worship him, but some in their midst are doubting. Some are wrestling. They're struggling with unbelief. That's not what you would expect in these last words in Matthew. You, wouldn't ex you would have expect the sentence to end with, they worshipped him, period. But some doubted is what it says. Now, why in the world would Matthew choose to include those three words? Well, first, I'll submit to you, is because it's true. Be because it is true. Listen, if Matthew was going to fabricate a story like this, I guarantee you those three words would have been left out. He would not have included that. If he was going to make up a story to, to convince people of a Jesus who maybe was not actually the Jesus that he was claiming to be, then he would have left those words out. But he included them. He included them. This demonstrates, I think, it points to the historical accuracy of Matthew's account. But another reason, I think one that maybe is more practical for us, is that by doing this, he shows a weakness in the disciples. 
See, the picture of these 11 men is not a picture of 11 men who have it all figured out. They have not all arrived, so to speak. They are struggling, maybe in different areas in their life, with believing who Jesus said he is and why it matters to them. They are wrestling, they are struggling with belief. The word here used is doubt. This, this doubt word is used also um, in Matthew's account to describe Peter's faith in Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus appears to the disciples walking on the water. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. Jesus is approaching the disciples. They're out in the boat. He's approaching them. As, he, as he's doing this, he's walking on the water. They see this. Some of them are terrified. He says, come out to me. And, and Peter, this man, steps out on the water and begins to take step after step towards his Savior, walking on the water with Jesus. But as he takes his sights off of Jesus and begins to consider the wind and, and what could happen if he begins to sink, Jesus says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is exactly the way that the disciples are feeling in the moment after the resurrection when they encounter Jesus for the first time. Doubt, hesitation, little faith, un belief. The final picture Matthew gives us of Jesus' closest followers drawing near to him is that they are many different places in their journey with Christ. They are in different places. Now, I can remember specifically, it was my senior year in college, and I was sitting back there, I think it was the third row, and Jeff was up here preaching, and it was around the Easter series. He was packaging some things together with the Easter series, and I remember listening to him. Now, mind you, I was in 24-7. I was a leader within the ministry, and I can remember sitting there, and as Jeff was teaching, there were thoughts that were running through my head. There were conversations I had had that week with, with some professors and with some, some friends in, in the, in, in, uh, that lived close by me um, and some classmates, and there were some things I was beginning to just kind of struggle with. Okay, is this real? Am I just... Am I just a fool? Is this actually real? I can remember sitting there thinking as Jeff was teaching, there were some things specifically he was saying that just they weren't adding up to me. I didn't understand how they had to work that way. You know, the, the minute I left, I'm so grateful in God's providence that the minute I left, there was a friend who I'd gone to church with, I was sitting next to, we got out there and I said, you know, help me understand. Help me understand. When he says this, how does that make sense? And for probably about an hour, we just chopped it up, we just talked you know, and it was incredibly helpful, incredibly helpful that from sort of an intellectual standpoint, I was having some challenges with my belief. And my response was not to just run away, it was not to run away, but was to maybe dig in. And, and I think the truth is, is all of us, this issue of belief, it may not always be like an intellectual thing, but I guarantee you, if we examine areas of our life, of our heart, we will see we will uncover areas where we are struggling to believe the whether it is goodness that God is actually better than careers or than education or than relationships or maybe it's it's a, it's a challenge to understand his greatness we just don't believe how great he is and that in moments when our life seems to be circling out of control that we're struggling to put our faith in a great sovereign holy God the truth is, unbelief is something that we all struggle with. And I love the fact that when Jesus sees these 11 disciples, he has this ability to know what's going on in their heart. It's not like he doesn't know they're struggling with belief. But when he sees them, there's sort of this mixed bag of guys coming from different places with where they are in their relationship to him, but they're all drawing near to him. What Jesus does not do, he does not say, okay, all of you guys, 
you, 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 and you who are struggling with unbelief, come over here. I got something to say to my 18. That's not how Jesus operates. He looks at these men, different places in their journey, different places with belief, different struggles in their life and their heart. And you know what he does? They draw near to him. He gives them his word. He gives them an assignment. They have a job to do. And I don't know what you come in here with this morning, what kind of struggles, what kind of challenges you are. And there's certainly times in our walk where we really need to just tend to our heart to make sure we're progressing and we're growing. And there are opportunities and ways just as a church that we've thought through how to do that, okay? But Jesus gives this commission to his church. He gives it to a church. And there's no better place to talk about unbelief, challenges that maybe you are dealing with when it comes to thinking about things of the Christian faith. There's no better place to go than to draw near to Jesus, bring those questions to a brother or to a sister, and help sort them out. Now, this setting is awesome to me. In this setting, this is in which Jesus entrusts the Great Commission to this team. It doesn't sound very promising, yet these weak, unbelieving men are exactly who the Lord chose to be his people. With no money and no building, he sent them into the world to be his ambassadors, to be his church. We found in Acts 17, 6, that the early church was so committed to this mission that the people of Thessalonica said, these men, when they look at the disciples, when they look at the church, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's the way they refer. So, so just after Matthew 28, when it gets over, 17 chapters into the book of Acts, and all of a sudden, people that are living in this area are recognizing that these men, that this community of believers, that as it grows, they are turning the world upside down. And what I want to submit as we look at the second half, what's actually in the outline there, what I want to submit to you today is that the power of the gospel still has the ability to turn the world upside down. It has the ability to turn our community upside down. But it won't if we aren't faithful to these words. This is how it, this is his plan. This is how it works. He does it through the church. I'm going to skim through the last part just to not belabor it. Next couple of things, three points in your outline. Three things specifically in the next couple of verses that we learn about the church. The first thing is the church and the authority of Christ. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As Jesus gathers his disciples in the Galilean hillside, he doesn't begin with a command. It's important to remember that, but with a claim, a declaration of total authority. Everything we're going to talk about this morning or any morning for that matter comes from this very basic but revolutionary claim. Jesus is Lord of all. Everything is under the rule of King Jesus. All of heaven and all of earth. The entire gospel of Matthew stresses the authority of Christ over and over and over again. Christ has authority over the nature, over nations. He has authority over disease and demons. In the book of Matthew, we see he has authority over sin and over suffering. All of life, King Jesus reigns. That's the truth. Here in the final scene of the Gospel of Matthew, we see the fulfillment of a prophecy that came way back in the book of Daniel, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. When Daniel spoke of a vision he had of a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Listen to these words. Hundreds of years before Jesus came. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This passage, written centuries before Jesus would walk on the planet, gives us a glimpse of what this Son of Man, Jesus, would accomplish. That he would set in motion a program to bring people from every nation, every language, the furthest, darkest corners of this earth into his kingdom. His power, his authority would extend beyond simply the nation of Israel into every corner of the earth. And in the book of Revelation, we're given a glimpse into the future, a picture of where eternity is headed. Listen to what is written in Revelation 7, 9, and 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that one would come number from every nation, from tribes, from peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God. People from every tongue, every tribe, every nation will be in heaven worshiping King Jesus together. Jesus proves faithful to his word. He delivers on his promise. And I would consider that maybe even, I think in our day, the, this issue of authority is one of the more pressing issues that the church has to address. That Jesus has authority in the church, but he also has, there's also the authority as a result of the church in our community. So he's authoritative over the form, but also the function, the activity, the purpose, and the mission. Next thing we see as we keep going is that the church and the commands of Christ. In verse 19 and 20, we are given the commands of Christ. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, as we look at these two verses, we can be tempted to place an emphasis on the word go. To do so would simply be wrong. There is one imperative in these two verses... And that is make disciples. That's the command. Jesus' followers here are called to make disciples. That's the business of the disciple, and it's the business of the church. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus made it known. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It was his focus from the beginning. Here at the end of his ministry, before his ascension, Jesus is reminding his followers of what their mission is. We are called to be disciples who are to make disciples. That's what we are to do. How do we do that? Well, he gives us three participles to tell us. We are to do that by going. We are to do that by baptizing. And we are to do that by teaching. First, just quickly, going. This word here was translated actually not a command, but it is a participle. Going. As you are going, you are to make disciples. That's the way it would read. The Christian faith is, by definition, a missionary faith. The very nature of God himself demands this. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God saw us, he saw you, he saw me separated from him. Cut off from the promises of God with no hope in this world. And what was his response? He sent his son. Jesus came to us. That's what he did, and that's what he does with his people. He calls us in to send us out. It's the type of church we are to be. 
Jesus did not command, and this is, I think, sometimes a place that sometimes the church can get it a little twisted just historically, is that we think that the command really is, is for the world to come into the church. If we do some things here that will really create an atmosphere where the world feels welcome here, that's the way we reach the world. But, but really, it's that the church would go into the world. That's the way he designed it. That's who we are to be. Now, this is just, to me, just as a you know, a place where it manifests itself. It's a great opportunity to just remind us in light of, I think, of where we are as a country, what we have seen just in the past week, um, some of the, the events on TV and what have taken place in Charlottesville and around our nation, really for the last, well, since its inception, A, but B, it's really emerged on the surface in the last couple of years and in the conscious of most of America. This is just one place in Scripture where we see pretty clearly that racism or white supremacy are completely antithetical to the message of the Bible. The, the gospel makes no provision for racism. This is evidence to that. And Christians, regardless of race or background, when we see it around us, we have a responsibility to stand against it. Not just when it's popular, not just to make a statement to get a pat on the back maybe, which can happen sometimes, but to do the hard work of examining our life and to see potentially where we're even contributing to it. Maybe blind spots that may exist in our life. See, the reality of us for us here today is that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you this morning would say, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Jesus, the truth is the only reason that is True is because there was a group of men from the ancient Near East whose skin was a lot darker than mine who were faithful to Jesus' commands. That's why we are here today. There's no provision within the gospel for racism. There isn't. It just... What we are seeing, honestly, is from the, the pit of hell, and it's an assault on the gospel. And... We would do a mistake as a church, as a, not as a Parkview church, but historically as the church, by not saying anything or doing anything about it. So it's one of the reasons why I love this church. Um, next, we see that we are to make disciples by baptizing. We are instructed by the Lord to mark these new disciples through the act of baptism. Through water baptism, we are able to show his word to the world. It is an outward expression of the inward change in the lives of the believers. It's not the means of salvation, rather the demonstration of it. It is through baptism that one identifies with the person of Christ and is included into the body of Christ. In commanding his church to make disciples through baptism, Jesus is saying our mission is to lead lost people to salvation by grace through faith. That's how we grow this church. If you want to think about a growth strategy for this church, it doesn't involve going to other churches and inviting Christians from across town to come here. All right? I do think you have, it's not one of the nice freedoms we have is you can worship where you feel most comfortable at in this country. It's an awesome freedom. But that's not our plan for growth. Our plan as a church is to grow by making lost people saved. That's how we want to grow our church. Baptism is a reminder. That's how you do that. He wants sinners to receive salvation. And the last thing that he mentions there in terms of strategy, how you do it, the very definition of the disciple of a disciple is someone who follows the teaching of a particular teacher, leader, or philosopher. People come to Jesus through faith and repentance. They are brought into the church through baptism, and the way they grow into maturity in their faith is through Christ-centered, spirit-filled teaching. 
This has been the central component of the church since its inception. We are told in Acts 2, verses, verse 42, following the ascension of Jesus to heaven, the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Immediately after receiving the Holy Spirit, what was the first Spirit-filled thing that happened? Peter stood up and preached a sermon. A sermon that was so effective that some 3,000 souls received his word, repented, and were baptized. And God has certainly... This is a good place to make a distinction. There are certainly people within the context of a church who have the particular giftedness or calling to teach, okay, and, and to lead and to, in that way, to use their gift in that way. But he does, not, he does not designate that just for the folks who are gifted in that way. They're all called. Part of making a discipleship is teaching the full counsel of God. To be ready to take these truths and communicate them to people in glorious, glorious ways. He says, he teach them to observe. It's not enough to know. Though it is necessary to, and good that we grow in our knowledge of doctrine, he wants that truth, the knowledge to transform how we live. Teach them to observe. He holds knowledge and practice together. In James 1.22, we are called to be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving ourselves. What should we teach them to observe? He says, all that I have commanded you. All of his teachings. There are specific times. I think this is a great example. We're in the middle of a series called Basics. There's a, there's a Sunday school class that's starting up, uh, I think, today, third hour, for the next couple of weeks, called Basics as well. And really, the intent there is to, with that class, is to, to take the things that maybe matter the most, the, the, the foundational doctrines in the Christian faith, and, and from a, a beginner's standpoint, pr uh, present those and teach those to folks who maybe don't have any history or experience with God's Word. But it would be a huge mistake to just stay on that surface level. When Paul is, talks about, he talks to the elders at Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 20, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. There are glorious truths in this book we discover every time we open it up. We are missing out on a tremendous amount of joy by just staying on the surface. God calls us to dive deep into his words. Deep. Now, here's the deal. I think for many of us, if you're like me, my calendar kind of revolves around the academic year. Over at Faith Academy, um, things are kind of wound up. We got starting fifth grade right now and got anticipate 75 to 80 students that will be in the school. So we're seeing God do some awesome things. The place was full of parents on Friday night. Really excited for what God has in store there. As a family, just my kids are kind of getting ready to go back to school. And my guess is many of you probably today, just from living in Iowa City, your calendar probably revolves a little bit around the, the university campus. Like we try to take our dates downtown, like in the summer when nobody's around. Okay, so and then when the students come back and steal downtown from us, then we just wait six, seven months, something like that. Okay, um, we do did we do dates outside of that? Don't worry. Okay, so but but there's probably times if it's not now, my guess is there's probably times in your life that are real strategic for you to bring some order into your life. For me, this is now. Like this is what I need to do. And I'm going to tell you right now because this is so foundational. This is Jesus's command to his church. As you look at your life and bring order to your life, if you are not intentional about where are you making disciples, odds are you'll just watch more Netflix, if you're like me. Okay, lots of shows on Netflix. There's lots of things we can do that can distract us, that can zap our time, that can take our energy. If we are not intentional scheduling in discipleship into our lives, I'm telling you now, it will not happen. 
Now, just a quick word for moms and dads. Your primary place to start is your home. I just met with a friend of mine the other night, and we were talking about different things, and it's not always easy. Like, we've got five kids from nine months to 19 years old, and it's like, how do you do one thing that captures all those people, you know? It's challenging. It's not always easy, and it's great for me. He was giving me some resources. I was giving him some. It was awesome to be able to, to learn that. It starts in your home, okay? That's where you want to start, moms and dads. Start in your home. It's your responsibility. It's easy to come and check them into the Sunday school here at church, and we love to teach kids. That's what we do, but starts with you. Don't be intimidated. Start small. Say four days a week, we're going to do it as a family. We're going to just read a couple of verses, and we're going to pray. Fifteen minutes. Supper time, breakfast time, natural times that you're together starts in the home. Think through what that looks like. Plan it into your schedule. The last thing, I think this is really awesome, that when he gives this, them this tremendous command, this huge responsibility, he does it also by giving them his presence. What an awesome promise we have in the last couple words. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission ends with a divine commitment of the personal and the perpetual presence of Christ in your life. Before he ascends to heaven, Jesus leaves these men with a tremendous, tremendous comfort. It's not a promise. He does not say, I will be with you. He says, I am with you. This is what marks us. His presence is primarily what marks us as a people. And I don't know what you come in here with this morning, but that should be good news. That is awesome news. He calls us to an awesome task. Gives us his responsibility. Gives us, he trusts us. What an awesome responsibility. And he gives us his spirit so we can actually pull it off. Even in the midst of our weakness. Even when we're struggling with belief. Jesus puts his saints to work. How, we are, how effective we are will be directly related to how dependent we are on his presence in our life. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you um, just for that. Lord, I thank you that you, you see something in us, even in our sin, even our weakness, even our inability to believe and to trust at times, Father, that you have still... You, you don't give us an out. You still call us to be faithful to this glorious task. And, and Lord, I pray that you would allow us, allow me to be able to see areas in my life where I need to grow in this area, that you would help us as a church to be, be able to see areas as a church that we can do better at making disciples more effective. Father, that we would be able to identify weaknesses, Lord. And um, yeah, most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would help us never to forget never to forget, never to hear your commands and to think of them as a weight that has been put on our shoulder or one more thing that we add to our list, Lord, but that we, we, we would hear these words, that we would feel and know you're present with us, Lord, um, and as a result that, that your people would be set in this city to do your work. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's word. 
For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.